0: Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Naisha Frey of Naisha Frey Consulting. Um, I am also the host of today's podcast, Questions You Didn't Ask. Thank you for joining me on my very, very first uh, podcast episode and series. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about myself and how we got here. So one of my professional mantras is that I am what I do. What do I mean by that? Um, what I mean is that when I, From the time that I was a young girl, it used to physically disturb me when I noticed, was exposed to, witnessed injustice, violence, hate, discrimination um, that ran rampant in our history and community. My parents, family and community, a.k.a. my village, um, developed in me a love for my African diaspora. I was particularly intrigued with the mental health of black people who had endured so much of the worst of this world and yet survived. In some cases thrived, despite it. In other cases, we were becoming our own worst enemies by engaging in abusive behaviors and self-hate. As I marched through my life and became a professional in the field of mental health and later public health, I saw my community my schools, my neighborhood, my friends, family, and eventually myself, and the research articles, statistics, and other facts and figures that were being thrust upon me as a budding professional. I became both cautious and concerned about these patterns of disparity, after disparity, after disparity. I realized that my lens made me different, and in some cases, a threat to the status quo professionally. I looked far and wide to find my people within the academy on the ivory tower, or as some said, deep in the plantation. We are here together, and they empowered me to blaze a new trail, develop and propel my voice, and believe that we have everything that we need to thrive. As they inspired me, some of them hired me, and others advised me. And I began to see a new future for myself where I didn't have to ask for permission to speak truth to power. I didn't have to navigate the corporate ladder for the opportunity to do the work that I wanted to do. I learned that I could become a health equity consultant and bring my whole entire self to my work and find like-minded people who are as dedicated to health equity as as I was to work with. I'm on a mission to develop community-informed solutions to health equity problems with Naisha Frey Consulting, LLC. So some of you wonder, what is health equity? Some people think equity and they think money, but then they say health, then well, what does that have to do with anything that I've just said? Well, according to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, health equity means that everyone has a fair and just opportunity to be as healthy as possible. This requires removing obstacles to health such as poverty, discrimination, and their consequences, including powerlessness and a lack of access to good jobs with fair pay, quality education and housing, safe environments, and healthcare. While there are many factors, including institutionalized racism and generational poverty, are among the most primary drivers of health inequality. These issues exist in every public and private sector of our society and shape the opportunities each of us have every day. As black people, we wake up every day knowing that racism exists in the world, but never sure how or when it will show up. Many of us hope and work for the, Af- for the American dream, but eventually realize that there are too many systems, policies and politics in our way from achieving it or being able to hold on to it if we do. All of this takes a toll on us as a community and much of it shows up in our health outcomes. Much of what I have done as a mental health and public health professional is to try to prevent or intervene on obstacles to health and wellness. One of the ways I address health equity problems, sometimes referred to as health disparities, is by diving into the root causes of problems and bringing light to those things that most people are scared to say or uncertain to ask. The purpose of this podcast is to uncover the questions we didn't ask, to break silence, isolation, and to some extent confront our own ignorance, which has led many of us to express stigma, conjure fear, and rely on avoidance as defense mechanisms, which usually eventually leads to poor health and sometimes death. For our first series, we are going to, to discuss infertility in the African-American community. Many of us are um, concerned about Black maternal mortality issues, um, how Black women are giving birth to children and how their health um, outcomes are following birth whether or not they're they you know begin to be sick or ill and in some cases die but what we don't usually talk about are the women and men in our african-american community that are struggling with being able to conceive a child to be able to have a child and What I've learned is that it's not even just a child. Sometimes it's, I have a child, but I'm trying to have another child. And now I'm having trouble. Today's topic, we're gonna start to explore the issue itself of infertility in the African-American community. We're gonna talk to people with lived experience. We're gonna talk about um, a number of different resources and opportunities but also again, some of those root causes, some of the cultural things that go on in our community that make this an issue and how we can work together and be better and more informed to support each other. So without any further ado, I'm gonna get into some of the meat of this topic and how prevalent it is in our community. So approximately 12% of women age 15 to 44 in the United States have impaired fecundity, an impaired ability to have children, including carrying a pregnancy to term. And 7% of married women between the, well, of married women um, meet the criteria for infertility. African-American, Arab American, and Latina women are less likely than white women to receive medical services for infertility. According to the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, the one cycle of in vitro fertilization, often called IVF for short, on average cost around $12,400 in the United States. That's right, just for one cycle, it's over $12,000. The fact that insurance coverage is limited for infertility treatment often becomes a financially crippling or cross-prohibitive scenario for women trying to get pregnant, especially women of color researchers found that African American women undergo fertility treatment that undergo fertility treatment have worse outcomes than their white counterparts. Also, the fertility industry has a racial disparity problem where black women do not get the same level of care as white women. black women often seek fertility treatment later than women of other races. So, now that we understand some of the stats, and I'm sure we'll get into some more, I wanted to kind of lay the groundwork with some definitions, some common terms, thoughts, and approaches that surround this so that we all come in with a little bit more background information to have a deeper conversation. So, The standard medical definition of infertility refers to a woman who has been unable to conceive after 12 or more months of regular unprotected sexual intercourse. In the United States, seeking medical services for infertility is positively associated with older age, a college education, high income, and being of European ancestry. So that brings in another topic. Of stratified reproduction. Yes, that's a fancy word that means medical resources are used to enhance the fertility of married, high income white couples, but not the reproduction of less valued, less de- desirable brown and black babies. This is a term that we use to describe the health disparity in the African American community related to infertility. There's also um, a very important part of our society where certain women are encouraged to reproduce, whereas other women, mostly poor women and women of color, are actively discouraged or denied the means to reproduce. Moreover, medical and political institutions support stratified reproduction. I'm sure you guys can think of examples in the Medicaid coverage um, era You know area Um, when we think about contraceptive methods and who is encouraged to use them and for how long and under what circumstances and how this limits reproduction among poor women but rarely covers infertility treatments to enhance reproduction for low-income women or women of color at the same time we have in our society this motherhood mandate that demands that all women in our society should or are assumed to want to become mothers. We have these current ideologies of intensive mothering go even further dictating that good mothering should be all encompassing enterprise. A good mother will personally, financially, and emotionally devote themselves and center their lives around their children. These are based on middle-class European-American heterosexual standards. And infertility as impairing their sense of self and sense of being a woman creates really negative feelings in our in, in women who are experiencing this. Some of, some of these women experiencing infertility consider themselves incomplete, um, especially as they compare themselves to this mother mandate. Um, they may consider themselves flawed and deficient in fundamental ways. And... Some of them have even said things like, "Uh, in my mind, it's as simple as having a baby. That's a hurt feeling that you can't do something that's that simple. And other women have said things like, that's what God created women for, to reproduce. So we have a lot of mental health, social and cultural health issues that collide under this topic of infertility, but then even play a special and unique flavor, if you will, in the black community where the black fertility mandate represents um, this assumption that all African-American women are fertile. We've seen it in depictions um, and statistics and imagery and our news um, in the media and movies um, music, you know, it's all about the baby mama, right? It's all about, um, I shouldn't say it's all about, but there's a lot of discussion about teenage pregnancy in the black community. You know, um, um, the fact that, you know, a lot of women are considered, um, if they're pregnant or unmarried that, you know, it must be an unwanted pregnancy or things like that. But when we think about what is a good mother in the context of the African American community, It's not independent. It's um, a self-consuming endeavor, same as before, but mothering is embedded in a supportive kin network with the practical imperative of sharing childcare responsibilities. There's also the legacy of slavery and persecution that's historic for African Americans in the United States. And I'm sure Africans around the diaspora may be able to relate to this as well. But it's been documented that a central component of even Black church practices is a racial imperative to marry and reproduce, especially within your race. Infertility is is typically accompanied by a host of negative emotions because of not being able to fulfill these different mandates and these different assumptions and these different imperatives. A host of negative emotions such as anger, anxiety, depressive affect, helplessness, and even more. Once you throw in the economic constraints, people can feel even more isolated with the lack of private health insurance to address these issues, perception of discrimination from medical health providers and ethical concerns related to how they're gonna be treated once they reach the doctor's office to address these issues or even attempt to ask the question or think about approaching a doctor about what's going on in their lives. So we find that a lot of African-American women are silent on this topic. And some of this may be linked to cultural expectations about privacy in the African-American community. Um, It's very common that we are expected to keep These matters private um, in order to provide protection from authority figures, such as teachers, social workers, doctors, and people outside the community who may be unlikely to understand African-American families and how we negotiate survival. In essence, some African-American women view their silence about reproductive difficulties as supporting racial solidarity by hiding their own personal vulnerabilities from public view. I have to give credit where credit is due. And that is to say that a lot of these ideas were sparked in me after reading a very impactful article called Silent and Infertile, An Intersectional Analysis of the Experience of Socioeconomically Diverse African-American Women with Infertility. This was written in 2015 by Rosario Sabalo, Aaron Graham, and Jamie Hart. So I definitely want you guys to take a look at this article and figure out what are the questions that you didn't ask? For me, when she talks about, when Rosario and Caballo talks about African-American women and more reasons to remain silent about reproductive problems is that they describe that they believe they should be able to handle these difficulties alone. They believe that they're themselves as being strong, reliant women. And according to this cultural stereotype, African-American women can handle problems without help, companionship, or support from others. There's a quote from uh, Hill 2009 that says such a response to traumatic life events may be detrimental to African-American women's psychological well-being. So there's this contradiction in our cultural and social expectations that we are communal while simultaneously being strong enough not to need help. Sometimes we do not use our cultural and social strengths as such, especially when we need them most. And thus lend ourselves to mental, emotional, spiritual, and physical burdens that could otherwise be averted if we were to lean into our community, family, friends, and other social supports. Rosario Sabalo also talks about the internalization of stereotypes about African American women's hyperfertility or belief in a Black fertility mandate, claiming that all Black women are invariably fertile. We know this not to be true. Many of the African-American women in, our, in, in their sample, Rosario and Zabalo, this study that they did, believed that they were an anomaly, an abnormal exception to the status quo, and thus different from other African-American women who had a propensity for reproducing. One of their, their participants said, like my friends who weren't able to get pregnant, they weren't African-American, so I didn't know anybody who was that had a problem. To me, this is the cost of not asking the questions or not getting the correct answers. Um, that we tend to believe things that are not true, and thus that puts us in harm's way to live our lives based on inaccurate assumptions. It's also, an understanding that, you know, we are oftentimes socially and culturally isolated, and there are different cultural expectations about silence, creates this this perspective that shapes a world view about the status quo of Black women. So since we're a numeric minority in the US, about 14% or less in some places, we do not see each other in mass. So there's more chances of talking to non-Black people who are infernal than talking to Black people who are infertile. This creates a false narrative that appears true just because of probabilities and odds due to racial population density and cultural norms visibility of these issues and challenges as well um, are so provides us an opportunity to create some solutions and options among african-american people and for african-american people what truly matters is for us to be together for us to have these conversations and that's what the next session of this series is about you'll be introduced to kanisha Bethay and also to Regina Townsend of The Broken Brown Egg. I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I have. Have a great day. I'm happy to introduce my first guest, Kanisha Um, She has a passion for working with communities to address health disparities. She's applied, applied her training and expertise in public health in various settings to improve health outcomes within the community and healthcare systems. Kanisha's love for working in communities began in the nonprofit sector with a small cancer organization servicing rural communities. She then moved to state government as a program coordinator, working her way to the assistant director of the NC Cancer Comprehensive Program with the NC Division of Public Health. Kanisha returned to nonprofit as the associate director of community programs with the Susan G. Komen NC Triangle to the Coast Affiliate. In both roles, she managed community health strategic plans for statewide initiatives. This included community and healthcare partnerships, collaborations and coalitions to address access to quality health care and improve the health of communities across diverse racial, ethnic, geographic and socioeconomic groups. Currently, she works at Duke as a research program leader with the Clinical Translational Science Institute, where she works to improve equity by increasing participation in clinical research for underrepresented communities. She leads several projects, including working with faith leaders and developing and managing a community advisory board that provides insight and expertise to implement effective strategies to ensure research is responsive to community needs, increase recruitment, retention, and dissemination of results. Kanisha is active in her community and always finds ways to bring the two worlds together. Her commitment to helping others it's instilled by her parents. She has two brothers and his mother to to fur baby to two fur
1: babies that she loves dearly. Thank you, Kanisha, so much for being here. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> I'm happy to be here. Um, it's an honor to be here, and I'm I look forward to this conversation.
0: Thank you. So, before we get um, into introducing our next uh, uh, esteemed guest, is there anything in particular that you would like to share with the audience about who you are and what what made you say yes to this
1: invitation? Well, first of all, because you asked, uh, that's first <laughs> and foremost. Um, I think, I think, I, I. I live and breathe who I am, meaning that um, when I spoke, when you spoke about my bio, as in bringing my two worlds together, my work pretty much has been who I have been mm-hmm. um, for most of my 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 life and my career. So those two have been married, um, and now this topic here that we're talking about today, I think is is important because um, I realized that that's something that maybe I should have put more to the forefront earlier on um but not realizing because these are conversations that we didn't have before that you do know you have a timetable but you just don't know how serious that timetable really is until you know you're faced with it yourself
0: so Mm -hmm. well thank you so much for being here and thank you so much for sharing with the audience i'm sure you all are going to enjoy kanisha um just as much as you're going to enjoy our next guest regina townsend Regina Townsend is an award-winning youth librarian, infertility advocate, and founder of The Broken Brown Egg, an internationally recognized reproductive health organization. Regina's heartfelt and humorous work has been featured in USA Today, Slate, and The New York Times. She has also appeared on BBC News and Fox Soul, and recently published her first book, Make if make sense, putting words to the fields of infertility. She is passionate about bringing light to the nuance of infertility in the African-American community, the unique needs of teens and young adults, and believes in connecting people to the resources they need to make informed decisions. When she's not learning from her teenage patrons at the library or playing on her PlayStation, Regina can be found binge watching Star Trek or sneaking off to the craft store. Her players two and three are husband Jabari and their long awaited son, Judah. Thank you so much for being here, Regina.
2: (laughs) Thank you for having me. I was almost wondering if you even needed me. I listened to that uh, intro and I was like, oh girl, you got it. You know what it is. (laughs) well you know the scholar in me requires me to do my homework especially
0: on topics that really hit home and, and and touch me in a special way thank you regina for being here is there anything else that you would like to share with our audience about you and why you chose to say yes to be on this uh recording today
2: Well, for me, infertility has kind of become my, it's my preferred soapbox. It is one of those areas. I really related to what you said in your intro about being um, very passionate when I recognize that there is an issue and that's just who I've always been. I've, you know, from elementary school to now, I'm the one that's going, Hey, why did they get two chairs? And this person didn't get one. Like I'm always that person. Mm -hmm. Um, And when you combine that with, uh, a street knowledge that is fueled by watching things like the women of Brewster place and roots mm-hmm. and pearly victorious and the color purple. Um, mm-hmm. When you add all of that together, it kind of makes this beautiful gumbo of, well, what we are not going to do is act like mm-hmm. these things don't affect us. Um, and mm-hmm. so I'm always open to having this conversation because it's one that people need to feel empowered to take back to their family and their village and have even more of. Well, thank you so much. And I just love um,
0: your your nuance and and reference to these movies that have uh, definitely touched each of us in a different way. And it's amazing how when we're watching stuff in real time, we never know how it's going to resonate with us um, later on in our lives, how it's going to circle back around. So, without further ado, I'm going to get into um, some of our interview questions. Um, so, as I mentioned in the intro, the predominant representation of Black women's sexuality has been one in popular culture of being irresponsible, excessive, uncontrolled, you know, hot, you know, all these things. But I'm going to start with Kanisha and ask, Growing up as a beautiful brown-skinned girl in the South, what were you told about what it was to be a young Black woman? And what expectations were given to you? How do you feel like those expectations affect your decisions about relationships and having children?
1: So, you know, it's interesting because as you were um, speaking about, you know, how oftentimes Black women are, you know, hypersexual and it's, in media, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a late 70s baby, not going to give my exact age, <laughs> um, born in the late, 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 um, but I grew up with hip hop. So, right. you know, I love hip hop. Um, hip hop was what I lived with And in addition to R&B music, mm-hmm. which at that time didn't realize how sexualized that music was mm. as well that our parents played um, for us and they grew to as well. Um, and then coming into my profession of public health, um, I kind of look back at things now and, and wonder, did I help, you know, reiterate some of these things that should not have been, mm. um, in, in the work that I was doing in my mind, thinking I'm making a difference and that I'm helping. Mm. Um, but I will say I grew up in a very loving community. Um, my parents, um, I felt the love with my parents, um, with my extended family, with my school, um, my teachers. I was always in programs that supported or that instilled in us that we were, we were amazing Black people mm-hmm. and that we could be anything that we wanted to be. Um, but I also grew up around um, within communities where we saw teenage pregnancy. You know, I had friends that had babies early and things of that nature. And, you know, that was just the path that they took. I will say that um, it was ingrained in us um, being around all of those who saw potential in us um, that, you know, don't get pregnant. Mm -hmm. I will say that those are words that you heard often. Don't get pregnant. Wait till you're married. Wait till you're married. Don't get pregnant. Mm -hmm. Um, And so although I heard those things and I did internalize those things, I did realize in college that I I really didn't want a child at that time. Mm -hmm. I didn't. it, It didn't even. I knew I was going to have a family. Those were things that I just knew. Um, but in t- terms of setting goals to ensure that those happen, those things happen as I have with my education and my career and other things that I've desired. I will say that I think that's something now looking back that we also need to, inst- we need to educate our, our women about our mm-hmm. black women about, and, and boys as, as well mm-hmm. uh, about those things. So yeah. Um, I will say that, yes, the messaging in terms of not having children, wait till you're married, were important and they guided my my path. But I think those messages were important because I don't think I would be where I am today without those messages. But just looking back now, we just need some tweaks, mm-hmm. need some tweaks in, in, in how that, that moves forward. Did I answer the question? You sure did. You sure did.
0: Um, So I'm going to ask Kanisha another question, then pop over to talk with Regina. Um, But how do you think the, you know, you, you talked about some of the cultural upbringing influences um, in your education um, and your professional goals, but you know, how do you think that that really influenced your goals about having children, like when to have children or what questions do you wish you would have asked and
1: when? So looking back now, um, I did, a um, like I said, public health has been my background. So I've done a lot of health education, community health, things of that nature. I've even volunteered where I've um, ran programs, tops teens, teams against, you know, um, pre- pregnancy prevention programs, things of that nature. I myself, because um, in college I didn't have healthcare, um, I went to Planned Parenthood You know, mm-hmm. to make sure that I didn't have a baby when I didn't wanna have a baby. Um, so I did participate, I participated and I would say spread the message uh, with regards to um, keeping women or having women be able to make choices about their future. Um, and so if you, you, if you wanted to have a baby, that's something you could do. But if you did not want to have a baby at this time, those were also things that you could, um, you know, you could ensure that didn't happen as well. But I think what was missing in all of this was the questions about the questions in education about reproductive health. Mm. You know, we talked a lot about preventing pregnancy, but didn't talk, did not speak at all about what we needed to know. To ensure that, you know, when, when you felt the time was right and you were ready, that you had all the knowledge and tools and resources um, at your disposal so that you could make that goal reality mm-hmm. as well. Um, and so yeah, those are things that just did not talk about, did not even know about until I had, you know, I'm now going through my journey. And so now I realize the importance of educating um women young about reproductive health and what that means
0: mm-hmm.
1: um and what they need to do to ensure that they um are you know are at their optimum health to make their dreams come true because it is a dream um a dream that many want to become reality and not yes. being that myself so
0: yes and i just want to say um you know kanisha and i full disclosure are friends former coworkers mm-hmm. Um, we, um, both have, you know, of course, backgrounds in public health, you know, a big portion of my career was around, um, sexual health, um, and trying to make sure that we let people know about how to keep themselves, um, healthy in their sexual encounters so that they did not, um, contract any sexually transmitted infections, especially HIV and AIDS, um, and, uh, You know, condoms was a big part of that conversation. um, And I think it still needs to happen. But you bring up a very good point about what is reproductive health. And are we only having a one-sided discussion about what reproductive health is? And it sounds like we are. I can say that we are, in my opinion, that we are only talking about um, how to um, either prevent you from having an unwanted pregnancy or not. Right. And so we're not necessarily talking about the full breadth of what is involved when it comes to having a baby, what your body actually has to do, um, how complex that is and what different things we need to be thinking about and when um, we need to be thinking about it and talking about it and preparing for it to make sure that when we are ready, that um, like you said, we have the resources that we need to make that happen. So I'm going to move a question around. And I think that this question kind of relates to where you're at. And Regina, I want your help on this. Um, How complicated is it to have a baby? Is it really a simple thing?
2: Ooh, that's a loaded question. (laughs) Um, It's not. And I think that that's part of the issue when we look at how sexual health is taught and reproductive health is left out. Many people don't really know what all goes into conception. And so when they think sex, they instantly think baby. And that's what you see in movies. Oh, she missed a pill. She got pregnant. pregnant. Oh, you know, it was a one night stand. They got pregnant. And that does not fully give the story of how sperm actually meets egg and how many things can be in play that can block that from actually happening. Um, And how many of those STIs that we are taught about can lead to infertility. Mm. It's not so much taught that, you know, you can have this issue and that could lead to your tubes being blocked, or you could have this issue and in the future that could lead to diminished ovarian reserve or anything like that. We're not taught that. It's just, let me show you this picture so that you're (laughs) adequately freaked out Um, Mm -hmm. and then you will be careful or just not have sex at all. And it's so not that simple. There's so much more at stake um, for us in terms of our health and reproductive health is health. And I don't think that people often equate the two the same way they don't equate mental health being health um Mm -hmm. it's not it's not simple at all and and for many of us we don't realize that until we're trying to get pregnant and we're realizing oh so there's only a certain window when you can oh so that's what ovulation means wait so you're born with all the eggs you're ever gonna have i didn't know that i didn't know that this could happen i didn't know that this could happen So it's really not um, as simple as we think it is. And when you really start learning about that, which usually happens as you're going through fertility treatment or um, trying to get your fertility testing done, that's the time when you usually go, it's a wonder any of us are are here. (laughs) It's a wonder Mm. that any of us are here when you start to see how much has to align for things to work towards, you know, becoming pregnant and actually getting that baby to term because infertility, Mm -hmm. the official definition doesn't just include the ability to get pregnant. It also includes the ability to stay pregnant. And we're not often taught or informed about that either. And we don't know how common miscarriage is. We don't know Mm -hmm. how many people, even in our own families, have experienced it, especially when it comes to black people, we have you know we create family, and so we don't often even know that this person is your cousin, but it's not by blood or this person is actually this person's nephew, but she raised them mm-hmm. as their son. We don't know all of that, so there's mm-hmm. there's a lot more conversation um that can explain how not easy it is to have a baby,
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. And I think you answered
0: my next, next question is, have we minimized what the body of a woman and a man has to do to create life? I mean, and very I think this is so. something that maybe Kanisha, if you want to jump in on, you can, but um, it is directed kind of at Regina.
2: Well, very much so we've minimized it. Um, mm-hmm. And I think when it comes to black bodies, there, it has been such a, a historic, Uh, direction of policing our bodies, that we've Mm. never really been given the full scope of what our bodies can do. Um, So we're just kind of told this is the information that I need you to have so that you do the things that I need you to do. But I'm not going to give you the, the full story of everything that your body is actually capable of in every way um, that you can be taking care of yourself. Eat, and it's it's by design, you know, if we look at our communities and if we look at it, I mean, you all are in public health, so you understand food mm-hmm. deserts, pharmacy deserts, all of these things contribute to the poor nutrition, which would then contribute to all of these other issues. Stress, our stress levels are higher. And when our stress levels are higher, infertility is more prevalent than it also leads us open to other disease. So we're just not as informed about how our bodies fully work. And it gets minimized into this idea that we're just these hypersexual creatures that cannot control themselves yeah. and need to be policed. Because if they're not, they'll just be having babies everywhere not knowing what to do with them. And they don't have no jobs and they can't. And when you really talk to us, like I was just listening to Kanisha give her background, and it's very similar to mine here in Chicago in that the stories tell us that we don't have full families, that we are Mm -hmm. living in communities that are disjointed, when in many cases we grew up in complete families. We grew up in village environments that supported and and taught us. We Mm -hmm. grew up knowing our power, but that was a struggle to learn it, um, and the same thing is is true about our health and our bodies.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for sharing, sharing that, um, and and it definitely resonates with Kanisha and I as we as we sit here together. Um, I want to talk. Okay, go ahead, Kanisha. I, I just wanted yeah.
1: to add to that. Um, it as Virginia was talking about, you know, all of the things in terms of how difficult it is you know, with, with having a baby. Um, I think the other thing, and you may ask this in in, in your questions, this may be coming up. Um, but I know for me, um, you know, I've been healthy all my life. Mm. So my health really wasn't my concern. Um, that wasn't something I was really thinking about. Now what I should have been thinking about was the number of eggs I have. That's what I should have been thinking about. Um, but, um, and this, this also could be a whole nother topic in itself. But those of us who, you know, desire to be married
0: Mm -hmm. prior
1: to having a child. And so I I know that for me, that's what really um, set me in the motion or the path where I am now is because I did not get married um, Mm -hmm. as early as I thought I was. I'm still not married Mm -hmm. when I say as early as I thought I was. But because of that, um, that. I don't want to say prevented me Mm -hmm. from having a kid, but that that yes, that is one of the main Mm -hmm. reasons why I did not, you know, really move forward with that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so then it got got to a point where I realized now you're not married, but girl, you're, you're getting older. So, you know, your window, as as Regina was saying earlier, your window is almost closed. And mm-hmm. so now what do you do? Mm-hmm. Now you have to go out and do this on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a challenge in itself because mm-hmm. my reality or my dream mm-hmm. of having this family with my baby, um, now that's different. Mm-hmm. And then now you have this new reality of, yeah, not only are you not married, now you really having problems with even you know having that child. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what does that look like moving forward? Um, yep. So yeah, I just wanted to put, put that um, piece in the puzzle as well. Um, because I know a lot of women my age and within my age group, mm-hmm. um we are getting married later mm-hmm. or not getting married at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so does that mean you still can't have your family?
2: Mm. Very and important. That's cultural too. That's cultural too yes. because the thought process is like you said, it's don't get married. I mean, don't get don't get pregnant, get married, don't go to school, get the good job, make sure you do this, mm. make sure you do that, make sure. And so there's all these steps that we're taught that we have to do. And they're not Mm -hmm. from a bad place. Like you said, they're from a place of people seeing our potential and not wanting anything to derail us. But the conversation isn't balanced. It's not Mm -hmm. let me give you the information that will empower you to make an informed decision. It's, I can't trust you to make the informed decision. I got to tell you what the decision is to make sure that you get where I need you to go. And culturally, we're responsible for the whole village, you know, it turns into, you know, you're getting a good job and and building the family, not for you, you're building, Mm -hmm. you're getting a good job and everything so that you can come back and keep us all, you know. And mm-hmm. so the collective says, you need to get the job, you need to get the school degrees, you need to do all of that and then get married. So for us, you know, now we're later getting married and then we're later getting pregnant and then we're later because everything is the community first, the community mm-hmm. first. But without the balanced conversation that says the community is important and so are you. Mm. key key key
0: key key so many key points right there that just resonate with me personally um i think even talking about the the degrees plural okay it's not just get your bachelors and i feel like those types of um conversations you know i'm i'm probably biased because i come from a family of, of four girls it's all women you know, and um, and so me and my siblings, we all have pursued higher education, but that was also kind of a, a standard that was set for us. Um, and I'm not sure if brothers get the same type of messaging just because I don't have brothers. I have cousins, um, I have, you know, uh, male family friends um but but they're not necessarily held to the same standard that women are and so even when we're thinking about our partners and when we're partnering and who we're partnering that becomes a whole nother question right so maybe a whole nother episode of questions we didn't ask Thank you for listening to our podcast, Questions You Didn't Ask, with me, Naisha Frey, and my guests this week, Tanisha Bethay and Regina Townsend. Tune in next week as our conversation continues.